You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Most of you probably know what I'm talking about, but there's some younger people here who may not have a clue what this is because I don't even know if they still make these things anymore. But when I was a kid, I had a friend who had one of those little plastic eight balls that was filled with fluid, and on the bottom was a a clear panel, and inside was a floating cube, and it had something written on each of the six sides of this cube, an answer. Some of you are nodding your heads like you're familiar with this. And then the idea was that you would ask the ball a question and shake it up and flip it over and the cube would flow to the top and there would be an answer written on one of those sides of the cube. Now, how many of you remember something like that? Yeah. I used to have a ball as a kid going over to my friend's house. (laughs) No pun intended. used to have a ball going over to my friend's house to play with his magic talking eight ball. And we would sit around for hours to be entertained by asking the eight ball questions and shaking it up and flipping it over and seeing what it would answer. And we would always ask it questions, not always, but most of the questions had to do with something about some girl in our class. Does Mary Jo like me? You shake it up and flip it over and wait for the ball to hit the surface. No, you're a loser. (laughs) Must not have understood the question. So you shake it up again and flip it over, and we would do that for hours. Now, you would never trust the largest decisions of your life to a talking, fortune-telling eight ball filled with water. But what we will not do with an eight ball, millions of people in our country do with astrologers and psychics and fortune tellers. And talk about eight balls. Billions of dollars are spent every year by people who want a glimpse at the future or some guidance or some direction And so they will call a psychic or they will consult their horoscope or they will call a fortune teller to get some sort of guidance. They want that. And as Christians, we look down our nose at that, but we do the same thing. But we Christianize it. We treat God and His Word like it is a talking eight ball. And we ask it a question and we flip it over and shake it up and wait for the answer to come to the top because we want some kind of direction some kind of guidance. And we Christianize the answers and we use phrases like this. God has clearly showed me that I should fill in the blank. God has spoken to me in a still small voice and He has given me this direction that I should do this. Or God has let me know. God has... That always makes me nervous when people use those phrases. I get nervous anytime I'm around somebody who thinks they get it straight from heaven apart from the Word. I don't know if those kind of phrases are supposed to make the person saying them sound spiritual, as if we say, well, he must be awfully spiritual if he's getting this stuff straight from heaven. God's just speaking to him. I don't know if if those phrases are used because we want to put the divine stamp of God's blessing on some decision we make. And inadvertently, and sometimes maybe all too often, God gets blamed for all of our bad decisions. Well, I felt the Lord was leading me to do this. It was God's will. He showed me that I should do this, and I did it. And now, look at the mess that I'm in. And God takes the blame. There's an easier way of discerning the Lord's will 
And there's an easier way of finding that we do God's will and decision making. How is it that we should do that? Should you and I expect to hear a revelation from the Lord? Should we expect God to speak to us somehow in a still small voice or a message scrawled on a foggy bathroom mirror? Or should we expect God to somehow impress upon our consciousness His will? Or to give us a verse or to speak to us through a song or a message? Should you and I be expecting that? You know, for you and I to say, God told me this, it betrays a very dangerous belief. And the belief is this, that God speaks to us apart from this. I don't buy that for a minute. I don't believe God has ever said anything to Jim Osmond that's not contained between Genesis and Revelation. Never one word. Not in a dream, not in a vision, not through a song. God has never spoken to me outside of this book. Sola Scriptura. The Word alone. The battle cry of the Reformation. That's what the Reformation was about. Does God speak through popes and cardinals and traditions in the church? Or does He speak through His Word? He speaks through His Word. That's it. And if it's not in here, He has not said it. I don't care how strongly you feel led. I don't care what you heard in a dream or what you think you saw in a vision. He speaks right here. So we need to be a people of the book. And I don't for one minute believe that God speaks apart from His Word. Everything God has ever said to me that I need to discern His will or to follow Him and to walk by faith is contained within this book. He has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And for me to say that, well, I didn't wasn't in the Word, but the Lord just was speaking to me, telling me this, that is to betray a heart belief that I have that this is not sufficient for every decision I need to make. And we either believe it is or believe it isn't. So how do you and I make major decisions? How do we discern the Lord's will on things? The apostles were faced with a very similar situation, a dilemma, to fill that twelfth spot that Judas left open amongst the apostles. There were twelve and Judas committed suicide by hanging himself and then he fell headlong and burst open in the middle and Luke says his intestines gushed out. And now he has left open a position and there's eleven apostles instead of twelve. Now, the rest of the apostles feel that they need to fill that position so that there are twelve. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 1. They're making that decision. And what is it that they do? Well, we covered the first two of four things that they do last week. We looked at two of the principles for effective decision making. They've got a decision to make, and so Peter leads them in doing two things. The first two we covered last week. The first one was that they waited on God in prayer. Verse 14 says that they were together in the upper room and they were praying. Of one mind, together, unified, intent, and devoted to prayer. And so this whole idea of replacing the apostle is birthed out of a prayer meeting. The second thing they do is they consulted Scripture. Peter goes to the Old Testament and he quotes Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8. And he says that the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And here's what they said. And Peter says that the Spirit of God spoke through David about Judas and said that Judas, because of his betrayal, would die and that Judas's position must be filled. And Peter is absolutely accurate in his assessment of the Old Testament prophecies. He's a good exegete. He looks at them and he discerns the meaning and the application and then Peter leads the apostles in being obedient to the Scriptures. They consulted the Scriptures. Now we go to the third thing that they did in selecting this apostle. 
Not only did they wait on God in prayer, and not only did they consult the Scriptures to see, make sure that they were within the revealed will of God, the third thing they do is they applied some common wisdom to the situation. They applied wisdom to the situation. Now we're going to pick it up in verse 21, which is where we left off at the end of verse 20, after Peter has quoted the Psalms. He quotes Psalm 69. He quotes Psalm 109. Now Peter's speaking still in verse 21. And Peter says, Therefore, because the Scripture has said this, and because it's necessary that the Scriptures be fulfilled, Peter says, Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that He was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of His resurrection. Peter just lays down some qualifications. He just lays down some parameters. We're going to select a man a man to replace Judas. What do we put in place? What kind of wisdom do we apply to this situation? Well, Peter discerns some real clear common sense things. The Lord Jesus chose 12 men. So since men are to be leaders in the church, men are to be leaders in the home, men are to have that leadership role, it should be a man who fills that position. So they're looking for a man. Another qualification that they put into place, which is just common sense, straightforward, is that he should be somebody who was with them from the beginning. Since the time that the Lord Jesus began His ministry with His baptism from John the Baptist, all the way through to the end when He was taken up from amongst us, Peter says it is, should be somebody who has been with us for that whole period of time. In other words, it shouldn't be somebody who's just a Johnny-come-lately. He joined the disciples because he heard about the resurrection. So he's here. He's a new believer. Hasn't been taught. Let's just make him an apostle. Nothing like that. He needs to be somebody who has been with us this whole time. And the third sort of general wise parameter that they put in place is that he should be a witness to the resurrection. What was an apostle to be? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall be my witnesses. So if you're going to have somebody who's to be a witness, it's a good idea that you choose somebody who had witnessed what you're asking them to tell about. So they needed to be a witness of the resurrection. He needed to be a witness. He needed to be there from the beginning. He needed to be a man. So they just put in some place some, some common, common sense parameters. This is nothing that Peter got from the Old Testament. It's nothing that he read out of some verse in Psalm. It's just some common sense parameters. We're going to fill a position. What kind of man do we need? Well, let's put some, let's do some thinking here. Let's put some parameters in place. We need somebody who's a man. We need somebody who's been here from the beginning with us. And we need somebody who's been a witness of the things that we're called to testify to. And so then, having applied wisdom to the situation, they put forward two men. Now listen, the third step of effective decision-making, after you've waited on God in prayer, and after you've consulted the Scripture, is to simply apply some wisdom to the situation. Ask yourself some common-sense questions. Is this good? Is this bad? If there's nothing in Scripture that speaks to give me clear direction on this, then I'm going to apply some biblical principles and some biblical understanding to this situation and put in place some parameters in which I can make this decision. And it might be nothing that you see spoken of in Scripture, but you're just using biblical wisdom. You're using your understanding and the brain that God has given to you. Rationally thinking. List the pros and the cons and ask yourself, is this good for my family? Is this good for me? Is this good for my church family? What are the benefits of doing this? What are the drawbacks of doing this? What could happen if I don't do this? What could happen if I do do this? How will this affect the people closest to me? How will this affect an unbelieving world as they watch what I'm about to do? 
Ask yourselves all of those questions and begin to apply biblical wisdom to the situation. And sometimes it's just a lot of, a lot of life wisdom. Last time I did this, this happened. Well, look, common sense tells me not to do it again if it was a bad thing. Last time I did this, it worked out badly. Well, don't do it again. Don't be ignorant. Don't act foolishly. Just apply some biblical wisdom to the situation. That's exactly what Peter does. We're going to put some parameters in place. They come up with two men. Who do they come up with? Look at the text, beginning of verse 23. So they put forward two men. Now, I'm kind of under the assumption that there was only two men put forward because there were only two men there who fit all of these qualifications. That amongst the disciples, if there were more qualified men, they would have put them forward as well. But they put forward two men. One of them, his name is Joseph. He called Barsabbas. And Barsabbas is a word. It comes from two words. Bar meaning son of and Sabbath from the word Sabbath. And it means son of the Sabbath. Uh, Joseph, son of the Sabbath. Maybe because he was born on the Sabbath. We don't know. He's Joseph Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. He had two names, Joseph and Justice. And the second man, Matthias. And then they pray. Now at the end of verse 23, we're, we're given two men. Both of these two men we know nothing of from Scripture, other than they're mentioned right here in Acts chapter 1. Matthias and Justice are never mentioned again in the book of Acts. They're never mentioned again in any of the epistles. And they're not mentioned in any of the Gospels. They're with Jesus and the disciples from the time that Jesus began His public ministry all the way through the ascension. They're absent from the Gospels. We don't see them brought in anywhere. We know nothing about these two men. We do know three things. Number one, they were men. Number two, they were with Jesus from the beginning. And number three, they were witnesses of the resurrection. They fit all of the parameters that they're looking for. And so they put forward two men. Now what I want you to notice is that after praying, after consulting the Scriptures, and after applying biblical wisdom to the situation, they still have two equally good options, don't they? There were three steps out of four. And so far, we're still presented with a dilemma. It wouldn't be a dilemma if there was only one person there who met those qualifications. Then it would be a shoe-in. We would know what the will of God is. But you presented with two choices. And it's possible that you might do all of that. You might pray to the Lord, you might search the Scriptures daily, and you may apply some biblical wisdom to the situation and still have two equally good choices to make. And you can't discern which one of them is the best. You don't know because both of them could be good choices. So what do they do? They apply the fourth principle. But before we get to the fourth principle, we have to answer a question. And it's probably been kicking around in your minds for the last couple of weeks. Um, at least probably for this last week and the last couple of Sundays, including this Sunday. Maybe some of you haven't even thought of this question, but I imagine that most or a lot of you have. And the question is this. Is what Peter did here right? Should he have been doing this at all? Did Peter run ahead of the Lord and do something that he shouldn't have done? Or should he have waited a while before filling that slot? Now there's a school of people and, and a way of thinking that says that Peter was rushing ahead of the Lord here. Peter should have waited because God's choice to fill that 12th position was the Apostle Paul. And so Peter should have just cooled his, his heels a little bit and waited on the Lord to do this. But they say Peter rushed ahead of the Lord without the Holy Spirit. They made this rash choice of Matthias and it shouldn't have been Matthias at all. This is Peter operating in the flesh. This is Peter rushing ahead of the Lord. This is Peter making a big mistake. And evidence for that, they usually cite two things. 
And the first line of argumentation goes like this. This is before Pentecost. This is before the Spirit's given. So Peter obviously is working here without the guidance of the Spirit of God because the Spirit's not given till chapter 2. The second argument that's cited is this. Matthias is not mentioned again in the book of Acts. And Paul becomes the central figure of the book of Acts. That's an indication to us that God's choice for this twelfth position was Paul, not Matthias, because Matthias is never mentioned. In the flesh, Peter chooses Matthias, and they make that choice, and then he disappears from the scene, never to be heard from or seen again. That indicates to us that the whole thing was a big mistake. Now, you may have guessed from last Sunday and this Sunday that I don't buy any of that. I think Peter, what Peter did here was right. I think he was spot on on doing what he did. And I'll tell you why I think that. If you pick up Acts chapter 1 and you just read this account, is there anything in there at all that suggests that what Peter did was wrong? Any word? Any phrase? Any editorial comment that Luke makes? Anything? There's nothing. Luke doesn't say anything that would indicate that what Peter did here was wrong. And now listen, the Apostle Paul is the hero of this book. If Luke wanted to tell us that Peter was making a mistake and that God's choice was Paul, now would have been the time to do it. But he doesn't do that. He shows us that they prayed. He shows us that what they did was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He shows us that they waited on God. They did this in accordance with their customs. Everything they did was right. And Luke ends the chapter by saying, Matthias was added to the eleven apostles. No comment whatsoever. No indication. No hint. No clue that suggests that what they're doing is wrong. Nothing in the text. Furthermore, when Luke tells us about how the Apostle Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, he doesn't give us any indication whatsoever that Paul was the one to choose to fill Judas' place. Nothing said in that. Paul gives his testimony two more times in the book of Acts. Both times, Paul doesn't say a word about being the one who was to fill Judas' place. Nothing. There's nothing in the book of Acts in this chapter or in any of the subsequent chapters that would indicate that what he's doing is wrong. Furthermore, there's nothing in any of Paul's writings that would make us think that he was supposed to fill Judas's position. Now, what about the people who say, this is done before Pentecost, before the coming of the Spirit? So Peter obviously is not being led by the Spirit here. He's doing something in the flesh. He's doing something of his own, and God's not in it. Well, Peter's also praying before Pentecost. Does that make prayer wrong just because they did it before Pentecost? Does he do it in the flesh? And why is it that the Spirit can't move before Pentecost? Why is it the Spirit can only move after Pentecost? You see, I don't buy that. I believe that this was God's sovereign hand and He was directing this whole thing. Peter is doing what he knew the Scriptures foretold that he should do. And he does it in obedience to the Old Testament Scriptures. The fact that the Spirit's been given has nothing to do with it whatsoever. It doesn't make it inherently wrong. What about the argument that Matthias is never mentioned again in the rest of the book of Acts? You know what? Bartholomew, Matthew, Simon, and Judas, and Andrew aren't mentioned in the rest of the book of Acts either. What does that prove? That they're not apostles? No. What's Luke's intention? To give us the ministry of Peter? To give us the ministry of Paul? To show us how the Gospel came to the Jews? And to show us how the Gospel came to the Gentiles? to show how it went from Jerusalem to Rome. If you're going to talk about the spread of the Gospel in Jerusalem, Peter's going to be the man in the beginning of the book. If you're going to talk about the spread of the Gospel outside of Jerusalem, you're going to have to change your focus to Paul. The fact that he doesn't mention Matthias doesn't mean anything other than he didn't want to talk about Matthias. He's not giving us a rundown of the ministry of all twelve apostles. He's focusing on two men, Peter and Paul. 
None of the rest of the apostles are mentioned either. That doesn't mean anything. All it means is it was not within the scope of Luke's book to do that. Now there's a fifth argument, and it's this. Paul never, not once, ever classifies himself as amongst the twelve. Not once. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5, in giving the resurrection appearances of the Lord, Paul says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then lastly to me as one untimely born. Who's the twelve? It's the eleven plus who? Matthias. Paul doesn't classify himself as the twelve. Why didn't he say he appeared to the eleven and the last to me as the twelfth one of the apostles? He doesn't do that. Matthias is the man to take this position. Matthias was an apostle. He was selected as an apostle under the sovereignty of God. He became an apostle and he's the man that filled that position. Now what about Paul? Is he not an apostle? Absolutely Paul's an apostle. Not inferior to the most eminent of apostles in anything. Authority, giftedness, teaching, mission, none of that. He is an apostle and an apostle of apostles. But it's entirely different from the twelve. You have the twelve, then you have Paul. Paul's ministry, his giftedness, his calling, his apostleship is an apostle, but it's something entirely different from the twelve. And even Paul recognizes that in his writings. He's distinct, he's different, he's unique, he's one of the apostles, but he's not amongst the twelve apostles. So, Peter wrong in this? I don't think he is. There's no indication he's doing anything wrong. I think he's doing something right. I think everything he's doing here is right in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. He's being obedient to the Lord. Peter looks to the Scriptures and he says, this is what it says in the Psalms. And then he leads the apostles in being obedient to the revealed will of God. He says, let's fill the position. And so they do it. They waited on God in prayer. They consulted the Scripture. And they applied biblical wisdom to the situation. But they're still left with two options. So what do you do? The fourth principle You trust God to guide in your decision-making process. You trust the Lord to guide you in the decision-making process. Look what they do. They begin by praying. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you've chosen to occupy this ministry and this apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And their prayer reveals two things. First of all, it reveals a conviction that God is able to see what we cannot see. Lord, I have two equally good options. But there's something that you can see that I cannot see. There's unknowables that I don't know about. And they trust the Lord to know those things. In this instance, it was the heart. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. From the outside, these two men look equal to us, able to fill that position. But you clearly have a will in this. And that's the second thing their prayer indicates is that God had already made His choice. And so they say, Lord, You're able to see what we cannot see. And that's the heart of these two men. And we know that You have made a choice already between these two. And so we ask You to make known to us Your choice. They do not ask God to bless their choice. Lord, we're going to make a decision here. Whatever it is, we ask You to bless it. They don't do that. They say, Lord, You've already made a decision as to which of these you want. Now we ask that you would make that known to us. And so they trust God to guide them in the decision-making process. So then what do they do? After they have prayed, verse 26, they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. They drew lots. 
They roll the dice. They flip a coin. What? Are you kidding me? We're talking about the choosing of an apostle. We're on the brink of something great. This is the birth of the church. The coming of the Spirit is right around the corner. You're faced with two options, and, and you have this heavy responsibility to choose the right man to fill this position. The whole future hangs on this. This is not just choosing who it is that's going to open the door on Sunday morning. We're talking about the choosing of an apostle. And you're rolling dice? you got to be nuts. You leave that choice up to luck? Is there such a thing as luck? Is there such a thing as luck? The Jews had this really weird idea. They believed that God was sovereign. Can you imagine such a concept? That God controls the events of our lives? No. No way. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. He's sovereign over the casting of lots. He's sovereign over the rolling of dice. What do they do? They're Jews doing a very Jewish thing. They cast lots to determine what the will of the Lord is. It was something that was endorsed by the Old Testament. It was something that was even prescribed in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, they would bring the two goats into the high priest. One of those goats was to become an offering and a sacrifice. The other one was to have his, the priest's hand put on the goat and be sent away into the wilderness to symbolically bear the sins of the people out of the camp. How did the priest choose between the two goats? This is a sacrifice. We're talking about some of the most holy things. How did the priest choose? He cast lots. The lot fell to this goat. He's the sacrifice. This one bears the sins out of the camp. Joshua chapter 7. How did they find out it was Achan? They cast lots. Defeated at Ai? How did they find out it was Achan? Out of the millions of Jews, they cast lots. Comes down to Achan's tribe. They cast lots. Comes down to Achan's family. They cast lots. Guess who it comes down to? Achan. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 How how was Saul chosen as king? Casting lots. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Jews had this idea that God was sovereign and that He was even sovereign over the casting of lots and the rolling of dice. And so they trusted Him to work through that. Now, is this for us to do? Should you and I be doing this very same thing today to determine the will of the Lord, cast lots? Should I go to church today or should I stay home? Well, we'll roll the dice. Right? Odds I stay home, evens I go to church. Lo and behold, I find I'm only in church half the time. Should I preach today? Well, I'll roll the dice, see if I want to preach. Odds I don't preach and you sing all hour... Evens, I'll go ahead and preach and we'll sing half the hour. Should I pay my light bill this month? Let's just roll the dice and see if we pay our light bill this month. right? Or flip a coin. Are you and I to do that? The question is this. Is what we're reading here descriptive of something that happened or is it prescriptive of something that you and I should do? Is it descriptive? Is it just describing to us what happens? Or is it actually prescribing something for you and I to follow? That's the choice that we have. I want you to notice something. Number one, they cast lots. It's perfectly acceptable, perfectly legitimate. They're still under the Old Testament dispensation. The Spirit has not come yet. There's no indwelling Spirit to guide these people. So they do a very Jewish thing in a very Jewish culture, perfectly perfectly acceptable under the Old Testament, perfectly acceptable in their culture and in this historical setting to do that. But once the Spirit of God comes in Acts chapter 2, 
You don't see them cast dice for anything. You never see them cast lots. You never see them flip a coin. They don't do it. They don't do it in choosing, in determining whether or not Ananias and Sapphira are lying in Acts chapter 5. Peter doesn't flip a coin. Let's see if you're lying. They don't do it in selecting the seven deacons in Acts chapter 7. They don't do it in determining whether or not they should go on a mission trip in Acts chapter 13. They don't do it to determine if it should be Saul and Barnabas who go on a mission trip in Acts 13. The Spirit of God says, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. It's the Spirit of God who guides and directs the church. Not the casting of lots, not the flipping of coins. And Paul and Barnabas don't cast lots to determine whether or not they should bring John Mark on them the second missionary journey after he bailed out on the first. They don't cast lots to determine that. They just argue about it and then go their separate ways. We'll get to that in the book of Acts. It's never done again. Furthermore, it's never prescribed for us anywhere in the New Testament. Why is that? The Spirit of God is mentioned 50 times in the book of Acts. And while He's absent, they do what was perfectly legitimate and perfectly acceptable for them to do. And that is to cast lots in determining the will of God. Very Jewish thing done by Jews. It's not for us. Why not? We're never prescribed to do it. We're never told to do it. The Spirit of God has come. And God, by the working of His Spirit, under His sovereign grace and under His providential hand, guides the events that happen in the lives of His people. It's not for us. Now you say, Jim, do you no longer believe God is sovereign? Do you no longer believe that the lot is cast and that its every decision is from the Lord? I believe that God is sovereign over the flipping of a coin and over the casting of dice. I believe that He's sovereign over all of that. But I do not believe that He guides His people with that means. He guides His people through the Word, because we have it all now, the Word and the indwelling Spirit of God under His hand of providence as He moves His people. So what's the principle for you and I? Certainly not to cast dice. The principle for you and I is to trust in the providential, sovereign hand of God to guide us in the decision-making process. That's the principle. I trust that the decision that I'm going to make is going to be done under the sovereignty of God and that I am not powerful enough to thwart His will. So after I have waited on God in prayer after I have consulted the Scriptures and lined myself up in obedience to His will, and then after I have applied wisdom to the situation, if I'm still left with two options, what do I do? I trust in the providence of God and I make a decision. And I do it. Now when I went to Bible college, I committed to going for one year. After that one year, my intention was to come back to Sandpoint, go to Eastern Washington University and get my degree in accounting. I wanted to pursue a career after that. I decided that I would go to Bible college for one year in order to get a foundation under me so that I could live a, a mature and, and biblical Christian walk. I wanted at least a year of discipleship and biblical training. So I went. At the end of that year, I was faced with two choices. I could come back for a second year or I could come back to Sandpoint and pursue my career, go into accounting. Do what I had intended to do. So I prayed about it. And I tell you, I prayed about it. I prayed and prayed and prayed and begged God to show me something. There was never a scrawling on the mirror, never a vision, never a dream, never any clear indication. No real answer to that prayer as far as any clear direction as to which way I should go. I consulted the Scriptures. There was nothing in any of the Word that had anything to do with Bible college and whether two years was better than one or whether everybody who goes to one year should go for two. There, no verse at all dealing with Bible colleges and whether it should be one year or two. Nothing. And I consulted the Scriptures and felt, well, I feel that I'm in the revealed will of God here and I don't know that I'm being disobedient to anything that He says. 
So I asked the input from some of my professors and my friends, and I asked them to join me in prayer, and I sought wisdom on it, and I applied biblical wisdom, and I figured, you know, it's it's not unwise for me to come back for a second year, but it's not unwise for me to go and get the education and pursue a career either. Those are my two options, and both of them were really, from my perspective, equally good. I was convinced I would never be in ministry, convinced I would never teach or preach, convinced that I would never be doing anything like that full-time. So do I go for a second year? Well, yeah, that's pretty good, but should I pursue my career? Equally good. So what did I do? I went back for a second year. Why? Because I heard a vision, because God spoke to me, and I was listening to the voice of God, and I was spiritual enough to hear Him? No. I wanted to go back for a second year. Now, I'm sorry if that sounds really unspiritual, ungodly or unholy. I wanted to go back for a second year. I wanted to go back for a second year more than I wanted to pursue a degree in accounting. And you know what? I think God was in it. Eventually, you just got to say, I'm going to make a decision. Sometimes it boils down to what you want to do most. I'm going to make a decision, and I'm going to trust God to guide me in that. He can stop me if He wants, but I believe that in the sovereign, providential hand of God, He works through my decisions. And I believe that the Spirit of God put upon my heart a desire so that when I went back, it was exactly what I wanted to do because God was leading me that way in His providence in His hand. Two equally good decisions. How do you choose? You make a decision and you trust in the sovereignty of God to direct you in that decision. Proverbs 16 says, A man's mind plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. The mind of a man plans his way, but it's the Lord in His sovereignty and in His providence that directs our every step. Proverbs 24 says that God ordains the steps of a man. So how can a man know his way? Because it's God who works it out for His glory. What's your concept of God? Do you see God up, up in heaven biting His nails, hoping you make the right decision? Oh, I hope He chooses A instead of B. Oh, I hope He chooses A instead of B. Oh, no, He's almost choosing B. Oh, He chose B. What am I going to do? That thwarts my whole plan for His life. Is that your God? Come on, my God's bigger than that. I am not powerful enough to thwart my God's will for my life if I am waiting on Him in prayer I am consulting the Scripture. I'm applying wisdom to my situation and trusting in the providence of God to direct me as His child. I can't thwart it. He will direct it. He's sovereign. And so trust Him. And that's what the apostles do. Now the position that was left by Judas has been filled. But the position that was left by Jesus hasn't been filled yet. That's coming next week in Acts chapter 2. And we'll look at that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You are a sovereign, awesome, providential God. Thank You that, again, that there is nothing that comes into our lives except by Your hand of providence and by Your loving and gracious care for us. We ask, Father, that You would help us in discerning Your will and in making decisions to do all that the apostles did here, to wait on You in prayer, to consult Your revealed will, to apply the wisdom that You have granted to us in Scriptures to the situation, and then to trust You and to walk in faith, not waiting for some writing in the sky or some little voice, 
but just to walk in faith in obedience to you. We ask that you would give us that grace and help us to align ourselves with your word and thus your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.